I think everyone has a superhero power. And so I always ask people, hey, if there's a thousand people in the room, what are you going to be best best in the world at? Or what are you best in the world at? What are you going to be the best at? And I don't care what they answer. I want to make sure they have some self-awareness. They know what they're good at and they know what they're not good at. Okay, you know, tell me what you're not good at. And it's like, you know, I'm, I'm not good because I you know, try to do too much or I spread myself thin because I'm always working. Like, I don't, I don't like that. I like to know like, hey, what's a challenge in here that you're trying to actually improve? Hello, everyone. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering business, ideas, entrepreneurship, investing, and life. We take an unconventional approach that leans into thoughts and ideas that aren't often publicly discussed. We'd love to hear from you at thefortpodcast at gmail.com. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Fort Capital. All opinions expressed by Chris and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. To show you kind of how we'll start it, I mean, I just got done reading your uh your snag your ticket aboard the magic school bus blog post and thought it would be a really good way to start uh it hit home quite a bit with me i won't speak about the whole blog post but you talk about um what it was like growing up and some of the things that you were diagnosed with early and then you specifically talk about a trip to vietnam and an interaction with a a uh young child yeah, kid. in the village that kind of changed your life. And so I thought we would just kind of open it up, maybe talking about that blog post. And I think it sets a good foundation for who you are and what you're about right now. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you, you got right into like three layers deep right there, which is, uh, good. <laughs> that's what we're here for, baby. <laughs> well, yeah, no, um, Back in uh, back in 2003, uh, my mom mentioned like, "Hey, you should go on this thing semester at sea," and it seemed like the ultimate study abroad trip. Eleven countries in you know three and a half months. Mm-hmm. Like, why not with a bunch of college students? And at that time, I was like, "Yeah, you know, it's gonna be a party," and you know, open my eyes a little. And what it turned out to be is definitely a party, but at the same time, it just like blew my world away. And it made me realize like how incredibly lucky we are to be in this country because yes, you'll see pictures on national Ge- national geographic or, you know, you'll see things on the news, but you know, seeing this, um, whether it's poverty or just a new way of living, um, you know, across borders, it's just, it motivates you. It motivates you to change the world. It motivates you to do something important. And it, it gives you, well, it gives me, it gives me passion and purpose. So yes, mm-hmm. it was kind of a party. Um, and until that, until that point, we went from Jap- Japan to China, um, Thailand or Vietnam. And this, yeah, this kid just, you know, we were drinking beers and I, it was a, it was a bunch of stalls, like uh, just shops right outside the ship, just catering to, you know, this, thousand you know these thousand people uh these thousand students and crew members and this kid was just hustling you know all he knew was his dad's beer shop and just befriending him night overnight and like you know give him high fives and the last night i was like hey dude anything out of these you know 100 stalls go for it and this kid is like been i (laughs) he just ran to this ran to the shop a few stalls down grabbed this globe before I could go in the stall and he just held it up. And this is going to sound yeah, a little, little weird, but this, <laughs> this globe almost had like a, like a light around it. Like, it, and I took a picture with him and I was just like, this is um, absolutely surreal. This kid is, <sighs> yeah, well, like brought so many emotions to me because I'm like, we are here traveling around the world, taking it for, Granted, and you know, he probably not might not have the same experience uh, yeah. ever. Yeah, so uh, that really led me to, you know, opening up uh, 
it, building a world that creates you know positivity and the way I could do that positivity and um, exposure to different cultures and you know I wanted to definitely do that through Pillow, my second startup, but it's always kind of grounded me and uh, led me the right path. And so I'm about to do the same thing here at Pillow um, after the acquisition is, you know, take a, a lot of travel and, you know, find that reef, uh, find that purpose again. When you go traveling, um, you kind of go like with no agenda and with just being very observant where you are and just kind of letting things you know, something like meeting a kid in Vietnam, that's just nothing you would never think that that could be a life changing moment. So when you're traveling, I guess, how do you think about resetting and having new ideas? Do you just kind of go with a, an, a, an empty mind, just, you know, looking for anything and everything, or do you kind of go with an agenda in mind this time around? Yeah, it used to be, I mean, and it, it still is, but in the past, I would get a backpack, you know, just last time was just fill it with clothes uh, to go to the Philippines. And then I figure I can, you know, buy whatever's needed along the way. Right. So I went ahead and bought, you know, a bunch of board shorts and tank tops and all that went to Philippines. And last time I traveled, I was like, you know, I want to go to Nepal next. Um, and so I had to buy... <laughs> the exact opposite gear and kind of ditch my tank tops and board shorts to head up to base camp. But yes, um, I don't have an agenda and plan and I try to stay in hostels. I try to, uh, <laughs> I try to really become one with the other backpackers. And right. I don't like to say, not that I'm anyone, but I don't like to say my background. I don't like to get any, give anyone pretense. Yep. And sometimes I'll even, <laughs> this sounds like, I, I'll just make up like, yeah, I work in tech. Like I don't say anything um, about what I've done. Yep. And it, it, it makes, gives me like just a lot of real conversations. I think it's, uh, it's fair to say that in a lot of other cultures, like what you do for a living or isn't your whole identity. I think especially having been to Asia, a lot more people are interested in who we are as people rather than, then what we do is kind of the lead indicator to who that person is. Have you found that to be true? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, have you done a lot of traveling yourself? I've done some traveling. I've been through Thailand. I've been to Argentina. I've been to Italy. Um, not as much as I would have liked. Um, never really had a lot of moments in time where I could take off weeks on end, but I've gotten around as much as I could. Um, I wish I could do more. Yeah. So you, you've been to India. You've seen the. I have not been to India. Oh, sorry. You, you haven't been to India. All right. Tell yeah. me about India. Um, India is probably the most raw, um, raw, raw culture I've ever been to. And what I mean by that is just, there is a lot of poverty. It's mm -hmm. probably the most, but it's probably the most insightful and they have these traditions that you know have lived on for decades and decades varanasi they still um the varanasi river they still like cremate cremate bodies and put them in the river but um it's it's you know very much like thailand or any of these uh any any of these like countries that are you know i want to say below the poverty line for the more it's just uh yeah it brings you into a sense that um, you know, there's 7.2 billion people on this planet and, um, uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to get it. Bubble. Yeah. They, they, we live in a little bubble. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And so, and the world's opening, like, you know, now we can connect, uh, you know, all these folks uh, and I'm so happy about it is the internet can, you know, uh, the internet can give them these opportunities where it can double their wages, you know, in a matter of a year of education. Right. So I'm, I'm looking forward to, you know, my next startup, whenever that is like definitely employ a more work remote lifestyle within uh, my office and a worldwide uh, employee network. 
So is it fair to say that going on these trips is as much about learning more about the world as it is kind of finding inspiration for what your next idea and startup is? Like right now you, you have a pretty open mind to what it could be. Yeah, I would say absolutely. I think it grounds me as a person, makes me realize like what's important. It's not the, it's not the money. I mean, money is important to, you know, get your basic needs. Uh, but it's about, I don't know. I remember oh, just <laughs> helping people yep. uh, and putting a smile on their face. I always say the you know, smile is the universal language. Right. Yeah, I'm, I'm bilingual, not because I know another <laughs> uh, because I think body language and I'm, I speak English and it, it creates inspiration for me right. um, because I just want to, yeah, help others kind of give this, give them the same opportunities to, create a startup and it doesn't need to be a tech platform that, you know, scales to, you know, or tens of millions in venture capital. It yeah. can be whatever their dream is. And so, yeah, my next goal is to, um, you know, open that, open that up to people who don't have those options. You've built and sold, um, two companies and, and I definitely want to talk about that experience. Um, and maybe I'll save this question for after we talk about that, but, just before we go into it, I would have to imagine your perspective on entrepreneurship, the meaning of it, especially the meaning of it for you has changed since starting Note Hall to what this next venture might be about. You kind of, it just sounds to me like your perspective has evolved over time. Do you mean from Note Hall to Pillow? I mean, or from Note Hall to Pillow to whatever next, you do yeah. next. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think in, uh, at the beginning, it was all about being in charge of your own destiny. Right. And you're like, hey, I want to have financial freedom. I want to, you know, make sure that I don't have to go through the corporate slug. And at the same time, it would be cool to just see if I can, you know, run my own company. Um, at that time, yeah, when I first started, it was like 2007. You know, Facebook was starting to take off. And a lot of my, well, now friends are, you know, were in TechCrunch. And I was like, oh, I'd love to be there. Now it's more about like purpose and making an impact on the world. And so, yeah, it definitely, uh, it definitely changes. And also surround yourself with amazing people. Like that yeah. is probably the biggest benefit out of all of it. You get to hire like-minded folks and just a great crew that you, you know, spend most of the day with yep. and you get, yeah, you could be in charge of that. All right. So, we will hit on hiring people because it is the most critical part of business. But I want to just dial back a little bit. For sure. I have to ask. Um, you knew the question was coming. So you were on one of the original seasons of Shark Tank. <laughs> Tell me. Oh, man. We don't, have to, we don't have to belabor it, but I, I, love, I love it. How did that change your life? And how has it changed? How has Shark Tank changed today maybe from what it was for you? Or has it changed at all? from your perspective oh man okay so just yeah a little background yeah I guess. background it happened it happened in 2009 and this was like on a complete whim it was on their first first season i think we were on episode eight and they we applied about three or four weeks before the um they sent us out and it was just you know application what we're doing we'd only raised twenty five thousand dollars at the time and jumped in um and we hadn't even seen a show air. Yep. So it's not like we had the prep, like who we knew who the sharks were. <laughs> yeah. We just didn't know what it looked like on TV. So we walked in the walked into the tank and by that time we kind of already had some interest from investors. So it was kind of like, Hey, this all goes bad, we get a free trip to California, which at that time I, I couldn't afford because you know, we were bootstrapped and didn't have any cash. Yeah. <laughs> so um <laughs> Yeah, long story short is uh, we walked in there and walked out with uh, what you, if you will, like a, you know, a shark, shark fight. And so uh, Kevin O'Leary and Barbara uh, fought over the deal, ended up uh, $125,000 investment commitment later off the show. I think I could say this now, it, was, it turned into like a $225,000 offer. Yeah. But it was all... Um, Series preferred stock, right? Um, so at that time, in the seed round, we had something off the show that we ended up taking. 
but now I look at the show and I see like <laughs> the how much uh, drama that they uh, they impose in there, and you know, Cuban's great. He just like monopolizes the entire uh, entire show. Yeah, but but yeah, it's changed quite a bit. They definitely know how to get the audience uh, uh, glued in. And what I love, it actually has spawned a lot of entrepreneurs um, across the across the country, or at least I see it more as a a, a conversation at dinner. Uh, more often than not, yeah, um, is not Shark Tank, but just like business ideas or startups in general, and not just because of the people I hang around with. Has it? Uh, are you part of some like alumni group, or is it totally not part of your life anymore? Is there something like a a group of contestants that meet up regularly, or is is that is that over? Yeah, I, I actually put it far back into my head. And <laughs> Kind of like the, we were number one on Google that one, uh, what is it? It was like in October something. And that was like surreal for the first couple months. But every once in a while, like every couple months, I get, you know, someone like you or like the the boss that, my new boss that acquired us. He's like, I didn't know you were on Shark Tank. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, uh, there's like, no online it. network. But then, I, yeah, exactly. Sometimes I'll I'll get invited to speak. And I, I take it half-heartedly. Yeah, it was a good experience. I, I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't. Uh, yeah, I'd do it again. I guess they yeah. took six percent of our company at the time, and so that uh, out of our free, first deal it turned out to be like four hundred fifty thousand dollars. So it was quite expensive from a cap table perspective, but it's worth it. So they take six percent of your company just for going on the show, or because that's the deal they made with you. So originally, at the first two or three episodes, they took a percentage of every. They said they can enact like um, a warrant almost. Got it. And it's, and they said they wouldn't take it unless it's like a big company. But they ultimately, you know, there was money on the table, so they ended up taking it. Got it. Well, that company that you went in for was Note Hall, uh, which yeah. you started in college. What was Note Hall? And yeah, what was Note Hall? So Note Hall was, um, in college, you just don't realize like the opportunities that are out there. So in 2007, what I realized is I had ADHD at the time. Um, I was terrible at taking notes. Um, you know, the stereotype, well, by definition, a bad student, bad grades and everything. So we allowed students to buy and sell class notes. And so I was trying to create or solve our own problem and start at the University of Arizona had a $15,000 investment for my grandpa and then ended up uh, basically bootstrapping it across 85 colleges. And that's just a, it was like an online database where people would go and upload their notes. Yeah. So uh, it was a marketplace that allowed students and classes to buy one another's notes and they would get paid for every time someone would purchase it. Was it, did teachers like it or hate it? Oh man, I was just, it's funny because I was reamed at the time. We started getting to a point where the professors, when they introduced the class in the first session, you know, the first class is kind of a joke. You kind of go over the, um, you know, what's happening, what's going to happen in the semester. Yeah. They say, you cannot use note hall. And then that first day, it was like our best publicity ever. The, <laughs> the students would just, you know, flock on. So um yeah we we they didn't like us and now i this last year i just got invited back by the dean same dean that didn't like me to be a keynote speaker so when did you so you you grew it you grew it out of college and that was your first exit what is it like to exit a business especially in the tech world So back in the day, um, cause the you've done it one, twice. So we'll talk about yeah, both of them. Yeah. Yeah. The first one, it was, um, it was unexpected Yeah, because I didn't know what company would ever want to buy a class notes company. Right. <laughs> um, because there wasn't many in the education space, even large enough. So got a ping from the founder and I, we had so many emails at the time. Um, and there was like maybe 12 people in the company that I didn't even notice the email. 
like I just let it go. And then the founder started getting, Ayush was like, what's going on? Why isn't this guy responding? So he tried another time. And then he ultimately, like four months later, had to get an introduction <laughs> from uh, from a friend of mine. And I think that was actually a positive thing. And kind of like, you want what you can't have. Right. So um, get, getting in that, I mean, what what part of the uh, acquisition process do you want to know about? I mean, well, um, I think it's it's funny that you you're coming to work going some dude spamming me about trying to sell our company, but I do not have time to uh, to talk to him. I'm going to keep growing. I guess from the like that first meeting where somebody's like, I really want your company. And you're, you've been in growth mode. I mean, you just admitted you didn't even know there was probably a company out there at the time that would buy it. And that can kind of derail you um, from a standpoint of showing up every day, growing, putting your life into this, to all of a sudden somebody's told you, you're really cute and um, <laughs> they want to yeah. take you to like, you now start showing up with maybe 90% grow and that little itch to sell like keeps growing maybe day over day. And so... I don't know. It caught you yes. by surprise. Like, yeah, no, no, I, I can definitely, you, you honed in to, on to like the, the point where it is difficult. Mm -hmm. And so that the previous year we had grown 600%. Wow. And all of a sudden, like, yeah, this company called Chegg, which I, I heard about a couple of times. I didn't realize how big they were. Um, they took a couple of meetings. So first of all, they definitely don't tell you they want to buy you first off. You have, it's very much like dating. You know, you start flirting. You're like, hey, let's talk, like maybe texting. And so the same thing is the first three conversations were like, hey, what are you guys doing? What's up? What's the growth like? And then um, all of a sudden it's like, hey, would you like to be a part of a bigger company? Yep. And if, you know, if a girl comes up to you, she's like, oh, yeah, will you be my girlfriend? Yeah. It's kind of like, yeah, let's, you know. Let's talk a little more. Let's not rush into it. Yep. And so you kind of have to play hard to get, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, Did you call somebody, like a mentor or somebody, and say, like, hey, some dude's trying to buy us. What do I do? I think my investors at the time uh, I, I spoke with. But we were in a unique circumstance where we were growing extremely fast. And mm -hmm. we did have cash, positive cash flow. And it was fun. Um and I love the team. And so I just, it kind of naturally created that uh, dynamic anyway. Yeah. All right. So you're told you're cute. You're in, you've told your investors this, this uh, company wants us. How long from that time that he finally got the introduction to you to where you started mentally thinking like, all right, this is what I'm going to do. Yeah. So we didn't tell our investors. Got it. What's important is I didn't tell my investors, I didn't tell my employees until I hit on like we heard a number. Yep. And it has to be or even start talking numbers because you're emotionally involved. You like that 90% and that 10% does start creeping up. And you're like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, this could be another outcome like in the next 6 6 months or a year." So you don't want to like you want everyone to keep driving towards the the goals. Right. So we were <laughs> we were in Chegg, and uh, they one of the uh, one of the founders was like, hey, look at the it was sushi day. So we were uh, my sushi is my favorite thing, and they serve <laughs> lunch every day. And I was like, the guy's like, yeah, how about you just come on? You know, you know, we can give you a couple hundred thousand dollars each, and you guys can buy a condo, and you know, you guys can work here with a six figure job. Uh, we were paying ourselves. $35,000 at the time. Yep. So it was appealing, but it was kind of like laughable. Yeah. Cause I was like, yeah, you're, <laughs> you're trying to love well me. So I was like, Oh yeah. And then just completely didn't talk, like didn't email him, didn't talk to him, walked out of the office. But there was that little thing. It was like, I think he's going to write back. I think they're going to text back. You know? Yeah. It's like, I, I have a pretty good idea. They like me. So a couple, uh, another month went on and they're like, yeah, you should come back. And at the time, we were starting to fundraise. So what's important to know about acquisitions is you always need multiple parties, mm -hmm. uh, whether it's a another funding option or multiple companies that want to buy you. Yep. Okay. Yeah. 
you've got to create and a market. We've got to create a market. And at that time, we created a market um, by raising capital. So we were going to raise a million and a half. And we went ahead and funny enough, we were actually talking to their seed investor and who gave us a term sheet. It was Mike Maples floodgate. I can say this yep. now because it's like whatever, seven years later. Yeah. But Mike Maples and Reed Hoffman, the founder of LinkedIn, they put together a million and a half dollar term sheet. And I was like, please don't let Mike Maples talk to Ayush as a back channel to <laughs> or Chegg to say, hey, are you interested in, uh, are you, what do you think about this company? And thankfully they didn't. And so that allowed me leverage. Um, Ayush, I shouldn't like use the name on, <laughs> but like the, one of the, found, the founders, uh, he's over the phone. He's like, hey, how about, you know, it went from a couple hundred thousand dollars or five hundred thousand dollars to like a few million dollars. And then it increased uh, like and he's like, yeah. oh, but then how about four million over the phone? And I was like, you know what? We're not interested in selling. We're uh, we're signing a term sheet. Get a call the next day. And he's like, meet me down in uh, Scott or I'm going to fly down to Scottsdale. You have a conference down there you're speaking at. And let's talk over a sushi dinner. So it was the W. Um, it was W. It was a uh, it was a, the W Sushi Restaurant in Scottsdale. And over that deal or over that dinner, he said, let's um, I was like, this is my number. I was like, straight up. He's like, how about this? And I was like, OK, half in cash. He's like, okay, we get your half in cash. Done. Done. And uh, he called the CEO later that day. They wrote up a term sheet and we were good to go. Did but, you go to that dinner prepared to make a sale or did it kind of catch you off guard? I was, I was about, I was getting pressure from Mac Maples and Reed Hoffman to sign the term sheet three or four hours later. And I was just delaying and they actually increased their valuation so I did not have any thought that we were going to come to a deal right there because we were so far off. Right. We were, we were like four or five million dollars off. Did he? Well, um, so you agree and you leave there. What does the next like sixty days look like, Chris? This is the most <laughs> stress stressful. Hell yeah! Let's talk about it. Oh my gosh! Between pillow and note hall, I almost pulled my my hair out. Um, uh, it's the most, most stressful time as a CEO is selling, selling. It's 10 times harder than raising cash, um, raising capital. And because it's the difference between, especially when you're worth at that time, I, you know, maybe had five to $6,000 in my bank account and, uh, you know, 60 days later, which they said could very well be. Yeah, millionaire. Or I wasn't millionaire. And that time is, you have no idea the first time what LOI means. They say an LOI is a letter of intent. But it's non-binding. Non-binding. Yes. So you have 60 days of exclusivity. You can't raise capital. Your term sheet that you just raised where you got, you worked your ass off to get from investors. They don't want to deal with you anymore. You're, they, you've kind of written them off. So you have to do the entire thing again if they end up just kind of punting you. And so in that process, my investors tried to block us. Um, and what that feels like is it was half cash, half stock. So our investors are like, no. And they tried to put uh, 30% of the back end for us. And our investors are like, no, we see this as the basically $10 million, like they tried to put a few million dollars in the back end. And they said, no, we see this is not a $7 million deal as a $10 million deal. And so all of a sudden, like our investors want all cash and then some stock, and then we're left with stock. It was just a really bad, bad circumstance. And, and these investors two- weren't grandpa at this point, you had taken on more. Were these VCs or other angels? Oh yeah, sorry. We these were angels. Yeah, cool. But they did have board rights. Yep. And so when you jump in there, and 
you they just they're like this is the first time entrepreneur is selling his company like you know we want to we want to get all we can from this and you're like guys like be on my side they're like no we think this can grow the 30 million dollar company and so everyone gets very money conscious when the loi comes out that's what i've found right yep money doesn't matter unless you're the high uh, unless you're the highest bidder exactly yeah was there like when you left that lunch that day there's a dinner, but yeah. At that dinner, you had just walked away from some wonderful yellowtail sushi in Scottsdale, Arizona. <laughs> you had gotten yes. your number. And this is maybe a weird question, but do you start falling out of love with your business to where it's like, I just want to get this thing sold. I'm seeing dollar signs. I only have $6,000 in my account and not in a bad way falling out of love, but it's like, all you can now think about is how do I sell this thing as quick as possible instead of how do I love it the same way I did the day before this meeting? So what ends up happening is you feel like you're, you're having an affair with yep. your own company. Yep. And you're like, what? You have to really weigh the options and it goes back a hundred times over the next week. You're like, can I start that? Can you know? Can we drive this to a twenty million dollar company? Can we drive this to a thirty million dollar company? Who's going to be the acquisitions? But yes, you start falling in love with another concept, yep. and I think that's the difference between like Mark Zuckerberg was offered a billion dollars um, back by Yahoo back in the day, right? And he signed the deal. Oh, he did. I think he. Or no, sorry, he gave a verbal confirmation. Yeah. And and this is Dan Rosenzweig, actually, the, the CEO of Chegg. Um, and then he broke down into the bathroom um, one of the, like the celebratory signing um, meal. And he broke it in the bathroom. He's like, I can't sell it. You know, I'm too in love with what this could be. Yep. And I think that is the emotional, like, what is it? That's the emotional baggage that you wait back and forth, back and forth in your head for you basically have like a week to do it. Right. And uh, you have to really figure out like if you want to continue or does, do you think this could be a new home where you can make it thrive or are you just already out of love with it? And at that time I was, I didn't have much money. I didn't want to run a notes business for the rest of my life. So I felt like, um, this is a good opportunity to get a W. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, I have not been in that situation of selling a company. I've sold real estate deals before, but you get to that point where you go in every day, you're grinding it out, you're falling in love with the business, you're grinding, grinding. And then it's almost like a curse. The offer comes in and every day that becomes like a really stressful, tough day and you're going to bed looking at the ceiling going, I could sell this tomorrow and get my money and be on my way and blah, blah, blah. And it's a good situation for the company. It becomes harder to want to like grind through those stressful days when this thing's floating out there, which is, I don't have to do this. Yeah. You, you nailed it. And pillow was even tougher. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about what pillow, what, well, we'll, we'll start over on pillow a little bit, but I do want to talk about the sale of pillow. Yeah. And, and maybe we can talk about the sale of it before we talk about what it was from a, experience standpoint okay yeah um yeah that works that works well and mind you like note hall is eight years ago now so yep uh, you know try to drive with those memories but pillow you know still have some ptsd from the situation that's incredible i mean it's it everybody thinks that like the sale is this epic moment of just it's candy land and you find out most often it's exactly what you said it's stressful People, founders have PTSD. It can be very Worst tough. Worst time of my life. Wow. Both, both times. Holy For shit. For three months, you're the most depressed. You're, Why? You want to be, be by yourself. <laughs> because uh, shit comes up. Yeah. Both. Well, with Note Hall, I got a call 60 days into due diligence. It was supposed to close two weeks later from the CFO 
Uh, I think I, I can talk all of this because it's like statute of limitations now. It's yeah. beyond five years. But uh, they said, we need to reduce the valuation. <laughs> and he didn't say by what? And you're just like, I have to do this whole pitch over again. And at this time, you're it's all assuming, uh, all consuming because you can't tell your team members on the day-to-day basis that you're actually considering a sale. Right. This is the CEO's job to kind of keep it amongst yourself and maybe some other entrepreneurs that you know because you don't want to give them emotionally involved on how much the price is, who's buying you because then it could leak and this whole thing falls out of place. So you are every little during due diligence if they find you know whatever what's this that about you know that didn't match the pre what, what we did what we talked previously or you know how about this regulation or the these eight professors you know came out with tweets so that they don't like you you know all that emotional baggage like hangs uh hangs on you yep so that i think that's the worst part about it and when did you actually you, tell your employees like the day of yeah you have to the founders what do you say the founders you tell prior probably like right when you're signing the loi in both times i telling the employees you you tell them the day of signing the deal like when the money's wired and both times i've had this uh i guess uh the ceo or the head of product over at chegg came into our office and we pop bottles and you know it, it was a great they're all wondering like what happens to my job like what's going on who is Chegg? yep um and then with expedia i you know during the entire process i was letting i couldn't they knew something was going on they it's called a dual track is an investment or an acquisition but i had to you know give them let them know that like, Hey, this is for an investment. We're just continuing because there was investments on the, on the table as well. So the fact when the, the homeway Expedia people came and said, Hey, we're actually buying you. They're like, Whoa, Whoa, this is a completely different track than, you know, Sean led us on to believe. And you feel like you're almost lying to your, you know, these people that are just like your family for, you know, months on end. You're just, yeah. Keeping a big, big secret about their destiny and yours as well given that in tech like it's it's more understood that we're building these companies to sell them do you think that the employees they kind of like after the sticker shock they're like well i mean that was kind of the point of all of this or do you get a lot of like okay well what not only what is it what does it mean for me job wise like what does this mean for me financially do, do you start getting questions like that almost out the gate or What's like the 24 hours like after you tell your team we're about to sell this company? Or, <laughs> yeah. or not we're about to. The why the money's in the bank. It's done. Right. So the uh, <laughs> the first time, and it's a regret, is I, I the, we didn't know about giving equity to you know all your employees and we didn't raise all that much money so right. it was mainly tied up between the the four founders um the second time is we were prepared is we knew like what does this mean for me yep. and so we set out a basically you get this much equity or your equity converts into this much and you get this many rsus and having a sheet for every person and that was actually a really exciting experience because, <laughs> you know, <laughs> some of these employees have been with us for three and a half, four years yep. and watching their eyes, you know, a couple of weeks people went to tears yeah. um, about like, it was just game changing. An RSU is a restricted stock unit. Precisely. Yes. Was it different selling to HomeAway than it was to Chegg? Like, you know, it'd been nine years later, businesses evolved, things are different, or was it a similar just kind of process? Um, well, it was technically Expedia. Oh, I'm sorry. And, yeah, Expedia. Yeah, well, yeah, so Expedia is, um, is very, has a lot of experience in this. 
And it was a completely different process. We were Chegg's third acquisition. I think they've done almost 20 now. Mm-hmm. And Expedia has done over 20 acquisitions and most have been, you know, over a billion dollars. And we weren't, you know, right. we weren't near a billion dollars. Um, but Expedia, when they had us go in the due diligence file, you know, in the Dropbox. So we use, uh, there's a due diligence folder that we go back and forth on. And we had four people in there or six and they had 82. And, you know, I don't want to comment too much on the due diligence process, but yeah. yes, it, they, they run it very much, uh, more formal and professional and, uh, and we were prepared for that as well. And was that a, from from the time you had your sushi dinner to make a deal to closing is what, 60 to 90 days or longer? With Shag, there was those interruptions um, where we had, you know, the, we need to revalue the company, which ultimately didn't happen, um, to, you know, some other, like the Shark, shark Tank put a little, that 6% right there. Yeah that they had put a little like, basically it took twice as long. So it was 120 days of stress. Yeah. Do you ever, do you never really know it's closing until the wires hit the, or is there a time like a couple weeks before you're like, this is happening, like it's done or is it not done mm-hmm. until the money's over the goal line? Oh no, you, the money is, it's not done until the money's over the, the goal line. You hear about so many founders. And the worst part is like you go out and you start talking to these folks, you're like, hey, I just need a vent. I need to talk to someone because I can't talk to my employees or co- fellow co-founders yep. because I don't want to get them emotionally wrapped up yep. into what's happening. And whether it's the lawyers who become like your psychologist in many ways and other co-founders, they tell you about the deals that have fallen apart. And you're like, that's not what I want to hear. It, yep. can fall, it can fall apart at you know the six-inch line. So... Yes, you're emotionally just completely wrapped up until the money hits the bank. Without going, we can talk about what Pillow is and um, the business model. Um, But through it, you really learned a lot about human behavior and how people are starting to live. And uh, you opened up opportunities for people that don't own real estate to still monetize something that they rent, which is huge. Um, Do you want to stay and without talking about like non-competes or anything and not knowing what that world looks like for you. Like, do you want to stay in a similar industry going forward or do you, again, are you back to like, I, you know, the world's my oyster. I'm going to figure out what's next. Are there lessons you took from pillow that you want to maybe amplify over the next venture? Yeah. So with startups, having gone through two of them now, and basically three because we had a pivot with pillow is you realize it's the hardest thing you in the world. Yeah. So I'm not exactly sold on doing another one anytime soon. Yeah. I told my girlfriend, I'm like, I need make me take at least three years off and do absolutely nothing and force me to it. So I might have her sign. I might have to sign a contract with her just so I don't get yeah kind <laughs> of involved alone again. But That's um, awesome. <laughs> yeah it's great to be like financially there. Um, but you always see like a new shiny thing. Um, I think there's so many opportunities in this world. I think you being in the real estate industry, um, and having the relationships and I think also health is also an interesting, uh, vertical. Yeah. Yeah. What do you do to stay healthy? Uh, (laughs) I exercise five days a week. I'm going to go, you do yoga later today. Like during these startup days, it's tough. Just don't eat your own, your own office snacks. That's yeah. what I say. <laughs> <laughs> Do you meditate? Um, I've got into this journal habit, but on that journal, I, I meditated for 42 days. Honestly, I'm going to get back into it right now. Yeah. But I haven't meditated over the last like four or five months regularly. But it's on my OKR, my personal OKRs. I believe in you 100%, but I'm going to make a bet. There's no chance in hell you go three years without either starting another company or betting another company. All right. I might have to make a side bet with you. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. 
I yearn for the day I can have even a month of time off. I think about it quite often. I've been go I've been doing the same thing for 15 years. I think the longest I've ever been off is a week or two. Um, I know, but you, it's good to force yourself off. No, I know. So I like, think about it every day. Like, I don't know. Do you meditate? I started five days ago. My friend who's a Navy SEAL um, has started doing it, and he told me it's the best thing that he's done to be productive and to gain energy. So I, uh, I literally started on Headspace. Like, I'm five days into it. So I have meditated. To say I do, That's I need to at least get to like 30 days to call it a habit, Dude, I guess. Love it. No, that's great. I think it's 21 days make a habit, but Headspace got me was my uh, lost leader to get me in there. Yep. And uh, what's Andy? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Andy's like a good uh, reinforcer. There. Yeah, um, keep doing it. It'll be, it'll be worthwhile. Are you still working at Expedia or were you not required to work there after the sale? Um, I'm in the office right now. Okay. So when you say you're not going to do anything for three years, it means you're. You, it's not like you're not going to work the next three years. You're just not going to start anything the next three years. Exactly. Yeah. 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 yeah I mean, m maybe it's like I'll do a nonprofit on the side. Um, but yes, it's hard to keep the entrepreneurial mind just like content to you know playing golf or I don't know what people do when they're retired. When you Fishing. when you sold uh, your company, did all of your like what's the average amount of employees that actually stay at the new company? Like, is everybody from pillow still there? Or did some people, you know, check a box and, and move on? Um, so employees were, our team was a big component of the acquisition. Got it as well. Yeah. They our our team is, I've assembled an incredible team. And so they're all with us and um, you know, we've continued to hire. All right. So that's they my... definitely want to, they invest. They want to invest in the future. The yeah. Family. Well, then I have two questions off that. If you can't tell people that you're selling, how? And this doesn't have to have anything to do with this sale. But how would an entrepreneur tee up something that can guarantee that the team's going to move on? If you can't tell them that you're selling and you've sold the business by the time you tell them. So there's. There's primary employees. Uh, so when they, they set up the deal terms, there's like primary employees that need to sign. Right. And you need to get a certain percentage of signed. And then there's, you know, there's uh, offer letters that you give employees. Got it. And, you know, usually those are, you know, very generous. Um, yeah. And so employees are very keen to sign that and, you know, continue on with the team. Got it. And so you kind of present that the day it's, it's a, I can't imagine the emotion that they feel. It's like, whoa, we're working for a different company. Whoa, I'm getting a new job offer. Whoa, I have a lot more money or I'm going to have a lot more money. Like, I don't know. That's what they kind of, you yeah. give them the job offer the day they come in and announce it and give the HR terms and all the benefits. Yeah. But that's what happened in the last two cases. That's cool. Do you have a secret uh, interview question or a secret for how to find amazing talent? Uh, Besides interview a well, lot they, of people. So the second one is uh, the amazing talent is a different. Uh, so the interview question I love um, is basically, I think everyone has a superhero or a, their, their superhero power. Yeah. And so I always ask people, hey, if there's a thousand people in the room, what are you best in the world at? What are you going to be the best at? Yep. And I don't care what they answer. I want to make sure they have some self-awareness and they can say my perseverance. And it's like, okay, give me an example of that. They know what they're good at and they know what they're not good at. And it's not one of those bullshit like, like, okay, you know, tell me what you're not good at. And it's like, you know, I'm, I'm not good because I, you know, try to do too much or I spread myself thin because I'm always working. Like, I don't, I don't like that. I like to know like, Hey, what's a challenge in here that you're trying to actually improve right. for, for me right now, I'm trying to become a better storyteller. And so I have a storytelling coach. And so I kind of, I kind of look for those answers, like self-awareness on the positive and negatives. Where How about you? you? What's your, what's your favorite one? 
my favorite interview question. Um, well, even with even with uh, well, I guess it's different when it's an interview than it is when you're investing in VC. Um, but even when I'm talking to like a founder, with a lot of people, it's like, how are you feeling right now? I think people are caught off guard to to be asked like how they're feeling in the moment. And uh, that's so good, Chris. I'm gonna take that one. And if they freaking answer like, "Oh, I'm great," then following <laughs> that up with like, "Well, why are you great?" Like I, or some people will be like, "I'm nervous right now." It's like, "Okay, well, why are you nervous?" Well, I'm I'm sitting here, you know, in front of you and you on the. But why do I make you nervous? Or you just kind of like you can you can take that question a lot of different ways. Um, and you also have people that are like. You know, I'm sick right now. My kid was, you know, late to school and blah, blah. They'll, they'll be super honest. You can just get, you can tell a lot of how somebody answers that first question of just like, how are you feeling right now? Um, totally, totally. And I like the why, why, why. Yep. Like getting really deep down into it. Because most That's, people like never really have to explain themselves. Like if I ask you at dinner, like, how you been, man? You're like, I've been good. It's like, yeah, okay, right. why you been good? Well, I actually haven't been that good, but that's an easy answer. So I always say I've been good. Uh, yeah. But it's, uh, yeah, it just kind of, yeah. it leads to a little bit uh, deeper conversation. And it's not like an intimidating question. You kind of lead in with something pretty simple. Totally, totally. Yeah, it's, I, I still do the tell me about yourself too, like when I start an interview and it seems to, yeah, work well. But to answer your other question is, uh, so I was terrible about this at the beginning. At Note Hall, we you know hired a lot of interns, yep, and then we would recruit from the intern farm. And hey, I love to give people that uh, you know are just starting out like a chance that really want it. Yep. Um, but after our raising our Series A, um, you know, some convinced me, one of our investors, to pay an executive recruiting firm. Uh, $80,000. And I was like, <laughs> after, you know, 10 and a half million or 13 and a half million at the time, I was like, ah, it was so tough for me because I've been such a frugal founder. I was like, all right, let's do it. And that was one of the best investments I have ever made because wow. the average placement is, uh, it was for a COO, average placement is 100 days. I did probably 60 interviews over 250 days, but executive recruiters will get you top top notch talent yep and so half the time you're learning you're you're learning how to sell these folks because you need to yep just as much as you're you know interviewing them and they're interviewing you and so that truly gave me the understanding of what experience um you know, when when you bring experience to the table and just leveled up on talent and so that allowed me to recruit and um, interview even better going forward. Do you, so when you were at Pillow, did you use a recruiter for most of your hires or just for certain positions? So I used the executive recruiter that one time. And then soon after I brought on uh, part-time recruiters, internal part-time recruiters to reach out and bring uh, candidates in. If, if you were giving somebody advice on how to find it, is it industry specific or job role specific or both? Or um, like, how do you find the right recruiter? So I hacked this a little, um, to be honest. Yeah. And now that I guess I'm done with Bill, I can kind of say it is I get the recruiter. I give him my LinkedIn. I give him my angel list. I give him my social and I just have, um, you know, ping a ton of people that's ping awesome. a, yeah and <laughs> and it it seems to instead of just being a recruiter it seems to produce like four times the amount of results and given this part of recruiter you know goals they have to how many messages did you send in the week how many responses and then how do we tweak the message to get better response rates to in-person interviews okay. and so that's to get top talent and unfortunately, I would love to do this myself, and I have done this a ton, but I eventually just outsourced it to a recruiter, and it's paid tenfold. I love it. Is it a um, is it a is it a recruiter out of the Bay Area, like a 
it's almost like a growth hacker recruiter. If you're, or you're just, <laughs> who you, like who, who did you use or what's the So company? actually I, I, I used, I found someone on Craigslist that oh. was interested <laughs> in being a, they weren't even a recruiter in the past. They were, yeah. you know, someone that had interest in human resources and, I said, I would love to set up an interview process that's engaging, fun, makes the you know person feel like give them instructions when they come in, you know, set up interviews with these three or four uh, people within the company and make sure it's a good experience and well organized for everyone. That's awesome. Yeah. So thank you. Yeah, it's uh, I would definitely recommend hiring. It's, you know, 25 or 30 dollars an hour is what I paid them. And um, and then I gave them a bonus for every hire. I seriously, you'll be hearing from me soon. I I might be running with this idea as soon as we get off this podcast. We've we've like struggled at trying to figure out how to. We don't want to hire somebody full time, but we don't necessarily want to hire a big recruiting firm, but somebody that is constantly reaching out to people. Yes, and this is and a lot of times they want to hear right directly from the founder. So yeah. I actually heard this from another founder that knows Zuckerberg, and Zuckerberg will text you know, top engineers himself, or yeah. I don't know if it's himself is alias. Yeah. And, uh, that helps, you know, recruit some of the top minds in the Valley. Yeah. That's awesome. That's a, that's a good nugget. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? Something that you might want to get out to the world? I think recruiting a network coming into San Francisco. People always ask me, like, especially interns and, uh, people like, how did you create the network you do? And I, I didn't always have a network. I didn't go through YC. We we moved from Note Hall, from Philadelphia, um, to San Francisco in 2010. And I've heard about the Silicon Valley having, you know, all these CEOs, but I really haven't met them. And I've always seen them on TechCrunch. So when we when we sold at 26 years old, you know, I ended up trying to. I ended up getting a big house with a bunch of or four four roommates, and I was like, I would love to throw a barbecue. I want to create a network. I have some time. I want to have some friends that are in the industry. So, what I think you can do is rec you can hack a, a network just as much as you can hack a uh, you know growth hacking. Yeah. And so, <laughs> ended up uh, saying that uh, reaching out. I had this idea of like, let's create a dinner. So founder dinner. So ended up just guessing uh, probably the top 150 CEOs that I've heard of um, in the Valley. And I said, hey, we're having a founder barbecue. And I knew like five guys at the time. These people are going to be here. And ended up emailing them one by one and saying, hey, set a, sign up for this Evite. You know, come over to this founder barbecue. We'll get you, get you going, and uh, or we'll get you, get you involved. And at that time, you know, so we reached out to like Travis Kalanick and Logan Green and Justin Kahn and you know all these all these people. And three weeks later, I have <laughs> all these people that were like my celebrity crush, let's say in the tech world, yeah. were in in my house. <laughs> Playing flip cup, eating a barbecue. The Grubhub founder actually helped sponsor it with me, and um, yeah, I can call many of these guys like you know close friends and definitely uh, you know colleagues I can call upon eight years later. So what I want to say is like you can you can hack a network just as much as you hack um, you know growth, and you know they're out there. Um, and it's network has been some of the most like positive ROIs for me. So, and it's as, yeah. and it and it's about being genuine and not coming off like you have an agenda for, in this case, your barbecue or for anything. If you're going to hack something, there has to be mutual value being given and being received, right? Oh, absolutely. And that was the best part is when I'm in there interacting with people. They're like, Sean, I felt the same way. Like. I thought they knew all all knew each other. Yeah. I thought Travis Kalanick knew Logan Green. I thought they hung out all the time on the weekends. No. They're like, we don't have an opportunity. You know, we're working our asses off on our companies. So the fact that 
this is a round. They got to meet like-minded individuals just like I wanted. So the Valley might be a bubble, but, you know, there's limited interactions between, you know, the founders, which is, um, you know, a very lonely job. So it's cool to cool to bring everyone together. Bill Gurley did a podcast the other day that I listened to where he just talked about as busy as everybody is in the Valley. He said there's just this mystique about it that in a way a lot of people are still open to helping and available. And he literally speaks of this exact topic where you assume everybody's so busy, you would never be able to meet them. But because there's so many founders out there and so much energy that if you email someone or you text or you put a little bit of effort into it, even the most powerful people out there are more available than, than you might think. And it sounds like you found that to be true. Oh yeah. Yeah. And they just, they they're they're not going to really be the ones that you know reach out or they're they're not going to be the ones to create these opportunities because they're so busy but they want it yes they want to be a part of that without getting you know bombarded by people you know throwing them resumes and feel like they're yeah the paradox to even how we started with the young um kid in vietnam that you want to see do well and you hope, you know, really does well in life despite, you know, the challenges, even though we're talking about a different world where we're in America and things are on the surface, I guess we have a lot more benefits. It's still that natural human instinct to want to help wherever you can help. And I think for a lot of these founders, they get isolated. They get put into this box of like they're unapproachable and they're almost yearning for opportunities to you know, help somebody out, whether it's helping somebody with a startup. I know that's not helping, you know, so, but it's that same kind of um, idea of helping people, um, you know, when you least expect it. Yes. Yes. I'm glad. Thanks for making that full circle. Yeah, that's, it's, uh, it's so important. I mean, even when I give directions, someone comes up to me and gives like, Hey, do you know where this is? And I am able to point <laughs> It's kind of like out of the box, but I'm able to point in their direction. <laughs> I feel so fulfilled. Yep. And I think uh, giving is going to be the new luxury. And Bill Gates and Warren Buffett have already started this. And I think uh, people are going to realize this more and more in the next de- decade or two. I love it, man. That is yeah. a that is a uh, a perfect way to to bring this conversation full circle. Is I think giving is a new luxury and. It's not about big houses anymore. It's about experiences and um, technologies just made it so much more transparent where the world can get better. And despite what, you know, we tend to read in the media or anything like that, I think the world is moving in a, in a very positive direction. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. No, thank you. And dude, I, I love what you're doing with this podcast and, um, you know, just bringing these great minds on, you know, yeah, that was uh, that was a great interview. Yeah. Hey everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review for us on iTunes. It will help more folks discover each episode. You can also reach me on Twitter at Fort Worth Chris or our email at thefortpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again.